Hello, everybody. This is Ravi Gupta, and welcome to a special episode of The Lost Debate Show. Uh, today, I am interviewing Greg Berman and Aubrey Fox, who are the authors of Gradual, The Case for Incremental Change in a Radical Age. And this is a super fascinating book that we're going to spend this episode talking about. But um, they are both distinguished in their own rights. Greg is the Distinguished Fellow of Practice at the Henry Frank Guggenheim Foundation. He also serves as the co-editor of Vital City and writes a regular column about nonprofit leadership for city and state. He was uh, previously the executive director for the Center for Court Innovation, and he is the author of four previous books, including Trial and Error and Criminal Justice Reform, Learning from Failure. And Aubrey Fox is the executive director of New York City's Criminal Justice Agency, which is the city's main pretrial services agency, working with the New York City's mayor's office of criminal justice. And in this role, he oversees the major operations and future development of the CJA, which carries the, the very admirable mission of reducing pretrial detention. Uh, gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This book, it, it really advances an argument that I think uh, we've made on this podcast at various points, but give us this thesis like in the clearest possible way. So you're essentially saying that we live in this age right now where people, our politics especially, if you look at either side of the aisle, politicians are rewarded for sort of sweeping proclamations, proposing radical change. And you argue that both the change that we tend to see nowadays is incremental, and you also make a normative claim that the change should be incremental. Is that right? Yeah, that's basically the case. I think that we're writing against the status, people that would defend the status quo. I think that this book is really an argument for what we call ceaseless change, which is what we think reform is. We think there are you know, so many injustices and so many wrongs in American society that need to be righted. And so we can't just do what we've always done. So we're writing against those who would just defend the status quo. But I think that we're, we also are writing against, both on the right and the left, those who are trying to advance radical change agendas. And we can get into the weeds about why we think that. But I think for me, it's largely driven by my lived experience running this non large nonprofit for um, the past 20 years up until the last couple of years and working that work was very much done in concert with government and the lessons that I learned from that experience were that you know failure is endemic you know what we're asking government to do with limited resources to solve problems like inequality racism poverty hunger like these are really wicked problems that have eluded solutions for you know, as long as we've been alive, <laughs> well, as long as we've been a species, so um, achieving success is enormously hard, um, and we just need to to recognize that. But at the same time, that I've learned that kind of failure is endemic. I've also seen all sorts of victories, um, and these tend to be small wins, like quotidian wins that our government is achieving on a daily basis, but aren't making it into the front page of the New York Times or into the the Twitter ecosystem. And so I, I think that that was re what really drove us to want to put our stake in the ground and say like, oh, gradual reform is really the way to go. You talk about this pretty early in your book, but you know, the sort of the obvious rejoinder to that is so much of our country's history has been marked by really important changes that at the time were seen as radical. So, you know, ending slavery, women's rights, worker protections, 
you know, dramatic expansion of public works, dramatic expansion of the public school system. So how do you square that? Like, is your argument that, hey, those were radical reforms, but we're past that point in our history? Or is your point that actually those weren't radical at the time? They were actually the result of incremental change. It's a nuanced argument. And I think there is room for both moments of real disruptive change and radical change and incremental change. But I think it's important to say that often things that appear to be radical, that that may have burst into public attention at a certain moment, depend on a foundation being laid over many, many decades. And so often it's the incremental progress that allows for the radical breakthrough. It's just that people come to understand the radical breakthrough in a moment, whereas it's taken decades to get to that point. So often people say to us, well, you know, incremental change is great, but you have to get the radicals to create the environment to make incremental change possible. And and that may be true in some instances, but I think it's just as often true that you have change build up over, again, years and decades. And then, you know, someone might come along and lay claim to credit for that change. And it may appear radical in that moment, but in fact, it's really the the work of the incrementalists that's made that possible. And some of our case studies, which we'll probably get into later, I think try to tell that story. It was reminding me of that famous Hemingway quote about a, how a character went bankrupt two ways, gradually, and then all of a sudden. I think that our analysis is that's the way most change actually happens. Yeah, I mean, a good example was ending slavery, which obviously there was a movement to end it, but then there was a war. Like that was a radical and very risky and important high stakes moment for the country. And I think a lot of people who advocate for sort of bold revolutionary change now would argue that, hey, actually, one could say that this has been building up for a long time. Like you guys quote a lot of people in the criminal justice space uh, early in your book, you know, people like Ibram Kendi, for example, Um, you know, Michelle Denzel Smith, and these people who are like, hey, like, we need to abolish the police, we need to make, you know, major change, we need reparations. And I think if you probably if you probably interview them, they would say, well, okay, like there actually have been a lot of people working for a long time to make these changes. And yes, there have been incremental changes. And you point out some of them actually in your book when you talk, for instance, about New York City and, and criminal justice. But now's the time for that big moment, they would argue. And I, and I imagine that people on a host of issues, whether it's climate change or whatever, immigration you talk about, would say now is the big moment. Yeah, I mean, New York City is a good example of, of the dynamic that we're talking about. You know, we're Greg and I are both very familiar with this story, having worked here and lived in the city. But, you know, you go from having about 22,000 people held in New York City jails at, at the height of the crime wave in the 90s, held in terrible conditions of the Rikers Island jail facility, and now you have about 6,000. That wasn't all at once. It took many years and a lot of different efforts to bring that population down. You also have the city's homicide rate has plummeted. So it's, you know, a city that has both reduced incarceration and crime. And, you know, that that work took a long time. And and we are now at the point where we're talking very seriously about things that would have been un, unimaginable even a few short years ago, like the closing down of the Rikers Island jail facility. Um, and so I, I, I'm sympathetic to the concerns about, again, as Greg said, when we started, about the need to change and the need for ceaseless change and improvement and reform. But the the question that one has to ask is, 
like even if you agree on the end goal, what is the right way to get there? And I think we've seen, and it's staring at us right in the face, that sometimes when you advance a radical change, you threaten pushback and reversal. And that is a real thing that you have to deal with. And and I guess the if I if I think a little more philosophically, Ravi, about the purpose of this book, you know, it's not just counterposing radical change against gradual change. It's thinking a little bit about what is the view from the perspective of, of a practitioner, right? Like we're people who run organizations. You know, I work in the city's criminal justice system. My staff work in the courthouses, the five main courthouses across the city. And we know that change is hard. We know that systems are hard to move. And, you know, that government by and large is trying to do the right thing and people have honorable intentions. But, you know, these are tough systems to move. And there's always going to be some tension between the kind of big picture thinkers who are kind of advocating for change and, and producing vision and, and kind of winning kind of followers and acolytes by taking advantage of people's frustrations. And it's not to say that that's a bad thing to do, but on the ground, the view looks very different. And on the ground, you're talking about, you know, making gradual improvements in difficult environments, but where you can see the progress that you're making from year to year to year. And so in a way where this book is trying to do is articulate a kind of practitioner's ethos. The things that Greg said, failure is endemic, change is hard, people are trying to do the best they can in difficult circumstances. In a sense, we took those values for granted, Greg and I. We, you know, we didn't set out, I think, 10 or 15 years ago to write a book in defense of incrementalism. It was like the air, like the air we breathed. Like that's what we got up and did every day. And what we found, you know, particularly in 2020 and 2021, was suddenly those values were under threat. It wasn't just like, oh, I wish we could make change faster. It was literally like the people who believe in gradual incremental change are the ones holding us back. They're the ones keeping us from, you know, doing more. They're the they're the villains. And, you know, of course, no one likes to feel defensive. But I think at a deeper level, we wanted to stand up and say, like, hey, the work that practitioners do, the constraints they're under, the challenges they face, they're really important. And, and that's the way that you make breakthroughs in environments like that is by using the kind of gradual, incremental, practitioner-focused ethos that we had developed that I think we didn't even really... Until it was under threat, we didn't understand how important philosophically it was. And I think writing this book was a way of kind of putting our stake in the ground, articulating what what we mean by gradualism and incrementalism and what what that viewpoint looks like from a practitioner um, and, and really putting it out there in a kind of self-conscious and assertive way and saying, like, this is what we believe and we'll stand by it. I guess I just want to add to that, that to be clear we said that we're kind of writing against those who advocate for radical change, and that's true at some level. But this book is not a culture war screed. You know, the point of this book is is not to say that radicals are stupid or that people who voted for Trump are evil. I think laced through this book is a deep appreciation for some of the moments that you articulated, that there have been a handful of moments in American history where radical change was possible and really, um, some of the things that we're most proud of in American society are, in fact, due to the to the efforts of, of radical change advocates. I guess where I would have a beef is with the second half of your statement, Ravi, which is that the moment is now, time again for radical change. And I guess I just don't see the evidence of that as I look at our politics, political landscape, and I read the polls, and I see a country that is so narrowly divided. 
I just don't see a mandate for sweeping change for, from either the left or the right. Yeah. And, you know, what you're talking about on the criminal justice reform side, I think mirrors my experience at schools. You know, I was a charter school principal and superintendent of a charter school network. And there's a big debate right now happening in these education reform circles because the charter work, although they often we use the language of radical change, it was an incrementalist approach, really. It was, you know, one seat at a time, one school at a time, adding a few percentages every year in the cities that we worked on to what we would view as like, quote, it's like a very technocratic argument, high quality seats, right? And over time, what you've seen uh, and the sort of gold standard on studying charter school performance is Stanford's credo. They have shown that they do every few years, they do a comprehensive national study of charter school performance. Every few years they study this, the national charter school performance gets better and better and better while the market share is undergoing linear growth. And so it's incremental. And within reform circles right now, and for actually since I've started, there has long been this critique of charters. There's many critiques of charters, but one of them within reform is that they're just, they're too slow to get at the problem. And there's a new wave of people who are advocating for education savings accounts and vouchers and more aggressive privatization who say, hey, like we need actually like a fundamentally different large scale offering of school choice to families that will also seed like, you know, large scale, bold innovation. And, I, and that, that debate's playing out in in schools too. So I, I hear what you're saying. And I think um, on the school front, you know, you, you talked about Matt Ridley's arguments where he is, you know, he makes this point that bad news is more sudden than good news. It's in good news is more is gradual. It tends to be this is like a cousin of Pinker's argument, which you also quote him, where he basically, you know, has written about how we have this weird phenomenon where Rikers is a good example. If you talk to people in New York City right now about criminal justice issues, a lot, especially progressive activists, Rikers, criminal justice issues, they they a lot of them, I would imagine, will say it's as bad as it's ever been, which is fundamentally wrong. It's it's it, it ha- needs to be reformed, but there's not a sense of progress, right? Like and and i think that in and of itself is dangerous because if you don't recognize progress that's happening it can demoralize the people making the change on the ground and it also we run the risk of not supporting and furthering the work that has gotten us to uh, make progress if that makes any sense yeah i think that does you know when i was first starting out in my career my dad who's a businessman told me uh the secret to success is to underpromise and overdeliver and I was like, oh, that sound, that's really wise. You know, that makes a lot of sense to me. And then I got started to get involved in the nonprofit sector and in government. And the realization was, oh, my God, we do the exact opposite over and over again. There's constant hyping up of, you know, think everything is horrible, but I have the one solution that's going to change everything. And I guess I've just grown weary of that. And, and I have to say, you know, with full candor, I was a participant in that for many, many years. Of course, as a director of a nonprofit, I had to go out and raise money. And to raise money, you often have to kind of convince people you that- have to make pro- bold statements. Exactly. Yeah, nobody wants that linear growth. <laughs> you but, know? but, but I, think, I think the problem is that, that there's a lack of on- just fundamental honesty in our political discourse and that we should just be more honest. Because if we're not honest- I guess what I see all around me, and obviously the causes of public cynicism and distrust in government are complex. I wouldn't say that this is the only thing at work, but I think there's a natural reaction of the public that's told over and over by politicians and other political actors 
that, you know, just elect me or just pull this lever and that's going to change everything. And that's just not true 99.9% of the time. And I think we should just be more honest about that. I've been arguing uh, to in liberal circles that Biden's campaign slogan for 2024 should be boringly stable. <laughs> that would be my, I feel like he should run on that. I feel like more people, I was using the metaphor of an airplane, right? Like if he's the pilot on this plane that is the United States, look, it's not going to be an exciting ride. He's, he might not veer off course and take us to Monte Carlo or something, but he also may not, he probably won't take us to Somalia either. Like he's going to get us to our destination. Maybe it's that destination's Toledo, Ohio or something. But I actually think that that could be persuasive to people who are sitting around. Could you talk about this in the book? Like one of the things that makes the current or defines the current moment is the rapid pace of technological change. And so in many ways, the the role of government, one could argue, and this gets to like the Giuseppe Lampedusa quote that you have, which is he says, if we want things to stay as they are, things will have to change. And almost it's the reverse. If things are changing rapidly around us, maybe the role of government isn't to nervously overreact to everything happening around us, but instead should be the stabilizing force, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, the the first section of our book really tries to outline what we see as some of the the main constraints that tend towards an environment where incrementalism thrives in our American political system. I mean, the important point to make is that if you're thinking about like incrementalism versus radicalism, it's not like a dial. It's not like, oh, you get as much as you want. You just have to spin the dial. Like as if we if we just had the appetite for radical change, that's all we needed to say and it would happen, right? So what are the things that in our American political system that tend to promote incrementalism as the as the standard way that we operate? I mean, we obviously have a very um our our constitutional system with its system of checks and balances and our federalist system where you have authority devolved at multiple levels of government, that is a check on radical change in and of itself. You mentioned a Biden campaign slogan, which, by the way, I think would actually be popular with and is popular with a lot of the country. You know, despite the debates that you see on Twitter, most people are turned off by politics. They don't want things to change. They want to live their lives. They're very intensely devoted and interested in like their family life and their personal life, but they don't care that much about politics. And that's not a dishonorable way to view the world. That's the way that most people view the world. And that's okay. And, you know, we, in fact, commissioned a poll to ask people about their opinions about radical versus incremental change. And spoiler alert, it turns out that incremental change is very popular with almost every segment of the society. And then just to kind of outline that a last constraint that we think is really important, we call it the practitioner veto, which is that essentially, you know, you... Again, this gets back to the difference between like a top-down thinker and the people on the ground doing the work. You can have the best, most radical idea that makes perfect sense to you, but then if you're asking the field workers to implement it, they can slow it down, they can stop it, and that happens all the time in government. So it's funny in a way that people don't understand that like the baseline assumption of how the world should work in our system in particular is that it should be incremental. And that's, that is actually because of some kind of deeply held parts of our constitutional system. It's like in our fabric and DNA. And, you know, we've been a country for 200 plus years. It's not to say that we've run, everything has gone well, that there haven't been enormous problems in our constitutional system that we're still ironing out. 
But, you know, I think Greg and I came away from writing this book having more admiration for our constitutional system, you know, than we went in before we started writing the book, because we do see that there are some guardrails and important ones that, that have been established in our country, and it's important to understand them. Yeah, this is, you know, you, you quote uh, Amara's law from the Stanford Computer Scientist, Roy Amara, which basically people overestimate what can be accomplished in the short term, but underestimate it in the long term. And uh, it's almost like if you think about dieting, right? You know, often what dieting experts will tell you is like, yes, there are people who have the epiphany and lose weight really fast. And every now and then those people keep the weight off, but they tend, you know, people who tend to make radical fluctuations in their weight tend to gain it back, right? Uh, but the way to do it is, you know, get a little bit better every single day, right? Like maybe, you know, depending on what gospel you 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 believe in and, and nutrition could be like a very small caloric deficit every day or 10,000 steps, day, whatever it is people believe in, right? Is usually a better approach than, hey, starve yourself for three weeks and lose all that weight because obviously like that swing is not sustainable. So in a, in a way, that's part of what government is, right? Is like the thing about radical change is in order to achieve it, you need radicals and people can't be, and, and radical is in and of itself by definition, a deviation from the norm, a pretty significant one, right? And if you're radical all the time, then that's not radical. That's just the way things are. And so you can't build a culture and DNA of radicalism all the time, right? So the only long-term sustainable approach is one that you could do every day, you could do every week, that could be baked into the system, that you could build You could build norms and institutions and ways of doing things that can further that on a daily basis because you can't do that. I mean, like, you know, there are, like the French Revolution is a good example. You, there's only so much people can take of big swings and massive change in society. Yeah. The uh, French philosopher uh, Raymond Aron said, I'm going to botch the quote, but it's something to the extent that democracies are inherently conservative with a small c, and that it's only totalitarian regimes that are genuinely revolutionary. And I, I think that there's a grain of truth to that. And what you're saying reminds me of, a, I spoke to some students not long ago, and uh, I was actually quoting an, another person that we quote in the book, um, the late criminologist Joan Petercilia who passed away a couple of years ago, and we had interviewed her for another project, and we were asking her about um, criminal, the success or failure of criminal justice programs and uh, that aim to reduce recidivism. And she said, look, the best research we've got, you know, gold standard, tells us that the best programs, the most effective programs, well-resourced, good political support, run by good people, the best that you can hope to achieve is 10 to 20% reductions in recidivism. And when I said this to these young people, you could just see their, you know, them become crestfallen, you know, that this was such a, just like, what? We'd invest all this time and millions of dollars and we'd only achieve a 10 or 20% reductions in recidivism. You're telling me that's the best we can ever do? And so that's the bad news. The good news, as you say, is that if you keep stacking 10% reductions year after year after year, it's like compound interest. Eventually you will make a significant difference in uh, the lives of neighborhoods and communities. Um, and I think that that's the truth that we're trying to uh, articulate with this book. And, you know, going back, Rob, you said earlier that that progressives are, if you ask them like, oh, what's going on in New York City with crime and Rikers, that you might hear despair and a lack of recognition of the progress that's been made. But let's just workshop for a minute, like how like we might think about 
how to make more progress against the goal of potentially closing Rikers Island. All right. It's not in the book, but it might be fun to do this for a minute. So you've got about 6,500 people held at Rikers Island. You got to get to 3,000 to close it. About 5,500 of them are people who are held in pretrial detention. That's the work that I do at my agency. If you look at the data, there's around 2,500 people a year who are being arrested and prosecuted five or more times. And they're at one point in that sort of portfolio of arrests and prosecutions, they're having bail set on their case and they're going to Rikers. But they're also getting released because you don't stay there very long. And so that group of people, the people who are getting arrested and prosecuted five or more times, they're the ones who are showing up in the New York Post. They're the ones who, unfortunately, are pushing people on subway trains and you know, causing a lot of havoc in some cases. They're, they're being arrested and prosecuted, not just on minor token things. And so the question then becomes, like, what do we do with this group of people? We know who they are. We know that they're coming through the system. We know they're getting bail in one, in one court session and they're getting released in the next. And it's a hard problem to solve. But that's the issue that you have to be honest has to be solved if you're going to bring that population down because you've kind of eaten all the low-hanging fruit. That's what got you from 22,000 to 6,500. And so in my world, the only way to really influence that group of people uh, in a more positive direction is, is through trial and error, through, through trying out alternatives to pretrial detention that involve a lot of community support and that lower the risk that they'll get arrested again, which is not good for them. No, you know, It's not like a good thing for them to be arrested. It has a negative impact on them and prosecuted. And there are real public safety implications. And as Greg is saying, like that group of people, you're not going to hit a home run on the first day. Like you're not going to go from, you know, that very high rate of recidivism to nothing. So it's going to take time and patience. But the nice thing about incrementalism is that it works even when it's not like everyone is singing kumbaya and agreeing that that's the strategy. One of the downsides of a radical strategy is that it requires so much coordination and so much agreement that it can collapse if like not everyone is like, okay, let's do this crazy no, thing. Perfect examples of this are some, this sort of recent wave of district attorneys, right? I was actually an advisor to Alvin Bragg when he was running and he basically came out the gates with this memo basically promising big change and he ran up against so many different forces that made that next to impossible. I mean, in the end, he will have made some some of those changes, but nowhere near that sort of grand vision. And the, the real cautionary tale is, you know, my law school classmate, Chase Boudin, over in San Francisco, who, you know, really went in fully radical uh, about the changes he, he, he was promising. And this gets to this, uh, you know, you, you, you talk about Charles Lindblom, uh, the political science professor at Yale, who basically talks about how people who are promising this like major change, he calls it, I think, synoptic, the synoptic approach, which essentially just is like big comprehensive solutions to problems. And he, he talks about how there, there are certain conditions that allow for comprehensive solutions, but those conditions are often not there. One is that you need high quality information. Everybody needs to agree on the underlying values. And three is you need to have effective decision-making among government planning. I would add four, which is related to three, which is really competent execution. Right. And I think what you see with Boudin is there was an alignment on the values like this, you know, small business owners and residents of, of San Francisco weren't on board with some of the assumptions he was making. The 
government planners, like the city, the, the mayor and the, the district attorney and the police weren't all on the same page about those changes. Even the lawyers in his own office weren't on the same page about that. And they didn't follow through properly. So you had all that come together in this kind of toxic mess. And, you know, what's the result? He gets recalled. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a classic example of um, a few things that we write about. I mean, one, and you you referenced it earlier, I think, you know, I think your role as a change agent, if you're someone like Boudin, is to push the maximum amount of change that people can handle. And I guess where I would fault him is that he clearly exceeded that, right? There was not a sensitivity to what people could handle. And then as you've written about uh, in other contexts- And that even he could handle, by the way, yeah, like yeah. as a leader, like he didn't have the humidity to look in the mirror and say- this is way easier to say. And I, and Bragg, who I, I have a lot of respect for as a person, I think also ran up against his own competence. And a lot, of, a lot of these leaders don't, I think, underestimate what it really takes to see this change through. David Shore writes about how the, you know, the single greatest force in American politics is actually status quo bias. It is enormously powerful, people's resistance to change. And you can ignore that, but you can ignore that at your own peril. If you ignore that, then you get things like what you've written about, where Boudin was losing prosecutors from his office at a just an untenable rate. Uh, I don't remember the, what the numbers were, but it was a lot an exodus of a lot of people. And organizations, I can just tell you from having run an organization for 20 years, you can't survive for long or you can't be effective for very long if you're having to replace one out of every two people every six months. It just doesn't work. Yes, yeah, this, this makes me something that think of something that I that I've thought about as we've been writing and talking about the book is there's often this sense that like if you believe in gradualism and incrementalism, then you're like a creature of the status quo. But if you believe in radical change, you're the opposite. But logically, that doesn't make a ton of sense, right? Because in a way, like dreaming of change, dreaming that things can be suddenly different is you know its own kind of status quo. People have always dreamed about things suddenly becoming very different. And if you share the goal that we do of making improvements, and again, this idea of ceaseless change, the question is really more, how do you achieve the outcome that you want? How do you best achieve the outcome that you want? And so it's not about choosing the status quo versus non-status quo option. Because in a way, you can argue everything is a status quo. A dream of radical change is just as Status quo is a dream of <laughs> you just put my mind, Bobby. <laughs> Every, people have always dreamed. I mean, think about like, oh, I'll, I'll move to a new city and my life will be different. You know that kind of thing. And so the question then becomes like, how how do you make change more effectively? And in the examples, you can cite them all over the place of of things, unintended consequences, and you know, trying to do things in a radical way that end up blowing up in your face. And so I, I, I guess I just would urge people not to fall into the trap of thinking in these binary categories that hold you back. And so if it is true that you have a moment where radical change under very tightly defined circumstances allows you to make progress, then sure, go for it. But if in almost every circumstance you need to make progress in this incremental way, then you shouldn't be ashamed of it. And you should think about how to maximize the benefit, the potential benefit of it. You know, even in our conversation thus far, I think a lot of it, and this is typical of the world that I inhabit of kind of, I live in Brooklyn, I work in the nonprofit sector. So many of the political debates I'm a part of 
are between kind of roughly speaking moderate liberals and very radical liberals. And of course, that is just a very narrow band of the spectrum, right? And one of the things I so admire about what you're trying to do is you need to figure out how to engage with people who fundamentally disagree, who won't, who wouldn't even accept any of the premises that we've been articulating so far. And you know, I think that one of the the things that makes sense for about incrementalism for me is that one of the as we articulate in the book is that if you believe in incrementalism, part of that is I think believing having respect for your adversaries and being very sensitive about the idea of forcing ideas down the throats of people who fundamentally disagree. And we've talked about it in passing. But if you do that, the chances of backlash that you cannot control are just enormous. And I think we need to be wary, very wary of that. Yeah, you remind me in, in the business world, you know, there's, you know, we're speaking basically as we work, as the company is imploding. And people have been following this Adam Newman story for a while, but I got a front row seat in it because my best friend runs a different company called Industrious, uh, which is another co-working company. And I think the difference between those two companies, I think, is a good metaphor for the different kind of political leaders we have, which is we've got a lot of Adam Newmans, right? These people who come on the scene, they can't stay focused on one thing for too long. They've promised bold change. And yes, they have major, major integrity issues. Um, and so you put that together and what you have are these huge, huge promises. And then um, within a, you know, a short period of time now, you know, a decade, you know, pretty much, WeWork may cease to exist as a company by the end of this year. It's very likely. But everybody knows who Adam Newman is. Everybody knows who WeWork is. Because it is, it is, and, and Adam Newman himself has succeeded. He's now started another, he, he had a great payout. He's now started another company and has gotten investment. The metaphor there being politicians are rewarded for making these bold changes and moving on to another office. We see it every time, like all over the country. Now you have another company in Industrious, which most people don't know what it is unless you're a customer of it, but they have steadily grown. They're having a banner year. Uh, if they wanted to, they could buy WeWork, but they won't because WeWork is like a cesspool of bad leases. Nobody knows who Jamie Hodari is, the CEO of Industrious, unless you're in the industry, right? And what I think we need in politics is more Jamie Hodari's, right? We need people who are like, all right, I'm going to pick this one thing. I'm going to be really, really awesome at it. I'm not going to overpromise. I'm going to be like, I'm good at this thing. I am, you know, I'm going to be your mayor. And for eight years, I'm going to be the mayor. I'm not going to be like de Blasio. And I'm not going to be running for president in a quixotic campaign. I'm not going to be, you know, like this activist. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to show up at 10 and leave at three. I'm going to put in full days of work and sit through every hearing I need to do. Right. You know, you, you, you need to look no further than congressional hearings. Like nobody's showing up to these things anymore. People are out there fundraising, they're running for other offices, they're endorsing people, they're becoming political celebrities, and they're just not focused, you know? I'll get off my soapbox, but, you know, just no, I mean, it, it. it sounds like we have a case study for our sequel book. Um, I, I love that story. I mean, I, again, I, I don't want to, I'm just hearing my radical friends in, in the back of my mind, and I don't want to be too harsh about this, right? Again, I, I think there is a place for activism for pushing the the boundaries of what's possible. I think that throughout our history, activists have set kind of moral North Stars that have been very important and have kind of provided gui important guidance for our political leaders. But I guess what I've been feeling in recent years is that we've extolled activism, you know, in our schools, in our politics, in our journalism, in our foundations, 
in all of these arenas where everyone can't be an activist and everyone shouldn't be an activist. Like we need people that, like you described that are going to do the roll up the sleeves and do the hard, unglamorous work because that at the end of the day is how change really happens 99% of the time. Well, okay. Uh, you guys have hyped me up a little bit here. Um, <laughs> in, in looking ahead, so y- you point to our Congress, which I think like they have, you know, almost historically bad approval ratings. Um, you know, you turn on the TV, they're pushing the country on to the brink of insolvency and, you know, are probably, you know, are partially, if not significantly responsible for our bad credit rating. You know, if you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene holding up pictures of a naked Joe by Bi- uh, Hunter Biden in hearings. I mean, it's a, it, it looks like a it's circus. Great. It's to great. It sounds great when you play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it really feels like a circus to most of us. But you in your first chapter talk about how Congress is actually a little more effective than we think. So cheer me up here. Tell me why I, I shouldn't be as despondent about the state of Congress right now. Well, it, it goes to your point about there are real incentives in the system to take these like almost cartoonish stands to get attention to get on MSNBC or Fox News. And so that's what drives a lot of what people understand to be what Congress is doing. And, you know, the the truth is like control of Congress is very contested. Like you can swing from Democrat to Republican in either the House or the Senate. And it happens a lot. So there's a real incentive for the party out of power to spend two years or four years or however long just trashing, you know, the opposing party because they want to like get back control of the house, get back control of Senate. There was a time when, you know, you had, you know, the Republican party in control of Congress for decades and then the Democratic party in control of Congress for decades. And now it's just this swing back and forth. A couple of races can tip the balance. And so, you know, there's so many incentives for the kind of public understanding of Congress to be cartoonish. But then when you actually look at you know, what Congress is meant to do, which is pass laws and kind of pass laws that are the priority pieces of public policy that, you know, the kind of party ran on, that Congress is as effective as it's been for decades, which is a stunning thing. It was completely counterintuitive to me. And, you know, Matt Iglesias captures this concept with his term secret Congress, right? That like, what you read about in the paper is the disputes, but what is happening behind the scenes is often very quiet, bipartisan agreement. I mean, I remember, you know, this it's a trick now that I practice when I read the paper. You know, you might see like, you know, Congress at war over January 6th, and that's the front page. And then you open in, in the back pages of the Times, and the bottom it's like, you know, Congress quietly agrees on reforms to the post office. <laughs> And like, who's going to, what, what is the issue that people are going to pay more attention to? January 6th hearings are like technical fixes to the post office. Obviously, they're going to pay more attention to the former than the latter. But Congress is actually doing tolerably well if you're, if you're looking at their output, like what they actually are meant to do in terms of real world accomplishments, pass legislation that impacts, you know, our nation's health that sort of output level is relatively stable. It's Again, it's mind-blowing. Like, I didn't go into this book thinking we would find that, but the evidence is pretty strong. And it, once you kind of see it, see that contrast between, like, the public understanding of what the institution is doing and the actual way it's working, it really helps, I think, set the stage for this theme that we keep hammering away at between, like, the kind of way that 
the conversation has been organized and the chatter around how government works versus how it actually works in practice. So have I convinced you? Are you are you are you slightly more reassured? <laughs> well, I'll tell you where I am right now. Well, I'm not sure you've convinced me on Congress because I think the problem with Congress is it's not the it's not whether they're passing legislation, in my opinion. It's that the revolutionaries are there and they're they're close. And they're not my kind of revolutionaries, if you know what I'm saying. Like they're very close. Like the the debt ceiling standoff is a good example. Like they're very close to seeing through their radicalism. January 6th is a great example of this. Uh, and so I feel like we're we're ever so close to the breaking point. Uh, and those are those are two things that were rel- that were relatively unprecedented, both January 6th and the debt ceiling standoff. And so although I would agree that at the moment, um, the output and everything is like a relatively unsexy kind of like, I wouldn't call it competence, but like work being done. Uh, there is this thing lurking in the background that that feels quite dangerous. And and how do you parse? I mean, I guess one of the things that's been challenging for me and trying to uh, now I'm going to ask you for help um, making sense of the world. You know, one of the things that I've been found so challenging over the last couple of years is that every every problem is presented to me at DEFCON 1 level of intensity, right? Climate change, threat to democracy, <laughs> civil rights, mass incarceration, racism, inequality. And I guess I just, I'm having a reaction to it that not everything can be quite as bad as as people say. And so, again, part of us tr- writing the book, and again, I'm asking you for help because I'm not sure that I, we've wrestled to, to the ground either, because there are serious problems. I'm stressed out about exactly the kinds of things that you're stressed out about. But I guess my instinct is that a lot of the problems that are being presented to us in 50 point you know font on, on the New York Times are maybe not perhaps as bad as they appear. I, I I totally agree that they, they 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 and almost everybody else in the media sensationalizes too much, and there's a bias towards pessimism, for sure. Because like you know, although there are good news news sites, like it just doesn't garner the kind of attention like doing like a positive story than than running another negative story. I think as it relates to our politics, and I think that that structure of the media will, will always be there. Right now, we happen to live in an age though where. There are different kinds of media. There are podcasts that are long form that I think have more space for optimism than uh, optimism and just like polite, in-depth conversation than these than the, the ways of old media. You know, but at the same time, there's also the rise of YouTube and these channels. Like I, I because of my work at the branch, I, I consume a lot of of alternative media, and what you will see is uh, a propensity for easy conspiratorial explanations, right? Like, you know, the good example was like the January 6th coverage. I watched this show uh, called Breaking Points, which is like, it's billed as like a left-right kind of like one person's on the left, one person on the right. But what they both have in common is they are pattern recognizing machines where they'll be like, oh, if there's a conspiracy to explain this thing, we're going to go to that instead of the simple explanation. And I remember the January 6th thing, they were they were making this whole hay over the unindicted co-conspirators and they were getting the law wrong, like what it means to be an unindicted co-conspirators. And they were, they were either just like incredibly ignorant of what they were saying or really, really cynically misleading their audience or maybe a combination of the both. And I just see this stuff constantly out there where it's also like throwing like, I, I like to say it's like throwing 30 darts at the dartboard and if one hits, 
you're like, I'm a genius, but you don't talk about the other 29 darts that never hit the dartboard. So I'll get off my soapbox about that. What, what makes this moment really interesting, you talk about Pinker and about how, like when he talks about like the, so much of the progress we've seen on global health and the decrease in wars, et cetera, like just like the massive improvements uh, to society and well-being over the past few decades uh, are mostly the result of gradual change. And I would largely agree, but I also think that there are revolutions there. Like a good example is like, what's one of the most important innovations of the of the past 50 years? It's the green revolution. We even call it a revolution, right? It's like in Norman Borlaug, uh, like the, uh, you know, saving probably billions of people from starvation, right? And I actually think this is instructive because the pace of technological change and scientific breakthroughs is as probably extreme as we've ever seen. And it's another area where people are pessimistic about it. Like there's this, this, this sort of comedic meme that seems to be gaining steam that we don't cure diseases anymore. Have you ever heard this sort of shtick that people say? We only like we only create medicines to to allow people to live with their diseases, like what we say, because it's like a conspiratorial pharmaceutical thing. And it's just false. Like we've cured a lot of diseases. Like um, we've we've cured diseases, we've mitigated diseases, we've vaccinated against diseases. It's just not true that we don't cure diseases, right? So it's like it it just blows my mind. But but I guess back to the Borlaug thing, like the the revolutions are happening. They just often don't necessarily need to have government driving it. Although the the green revolution involved a little bit of both, right? Like I think it involved the government doing its part and the scientific community doing its part and also old fashioned entrepreneurialism doing its part. Well, the, the Norman Burlock example is a really interesting one. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the classic book, The Wizard and the Prophet, which is a kind of profile of Borlaug. Uh, no, I've read this. I just read The Land of Plenty, which is also about him and the, the Green Revolution. That's why it was on my mind, which is a really good book. I mean, Borlaug, you know, yes, he basically saved millions, if not billions of people from dying of famine when the other view of the kind of prophet. So he's the wizard for his work with gene splicing and all the you know work that he did to improve crop yields. Whereas the prophets were saying, oh, my God, we're all going to die and we have to, you know, make radical changes to reduce the population of the world, blah, 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 blah. But if you look at the Green Revolution itself, it's Norman Borlaug in Mexico making literally millions of combinations of, of plants and trying to improve the resistance of rice seeds to, you know, disease and working diligently with no one really paying much attention to him. And then the not to get into too much detail about this, but like the adaptation of his seeds was all about working with like one local community after another, encouraging them to use the seeds, giving them incentives to use the seeds. So, you know, again, like what appears to be a revolution at the end of it was only created through a lot of very intense incremental steps at a time when the more radical voices were saying, we cannot fix this. We're all going to die. We have to <laughs> engage in <laughs> radical population control. And so, yes, it's called gr the Green Revolution because at the end of it, it revolutionized the world and saved billions of people from famine. But it was self-consciously him working incrementally and gradually and, and as a practitioner trying to improve things against the competition in the marketplace, which was much more, got a lot more attention and was more popular. 
um, was radical voices who said, you know, who were who were calling for, you know, in some cases, incredibly uh, tyrannical population control measures, just to give an example, because they were afraid that we would all die of famine if we didn't do that. We didn't write about that one, but it could have it could have been a good chapter. <laughs> no, I mean it is a, it is such a it, it is such a great illustration of what you're talking about. Maybe it's a great place to end. Um, you know, there there is a such thing as survivorship bias, so I want to acknowledge that. But my hope is these threats and like these things that are either really threats or perceived threats, like artificial intelligence, global inequality, these these seemingly intractable problems that we have right now have borlugs right now and they have people who are toiling away working at solutions and this is why like the sort of creeping cynicism of our age disturbs me deeply is that i want us to have heroes i want us to celebrate people who are doing that kind of work and you know like you know in your world world there's people like brian stevenson and i'm in a in a bunch of people who we don't know their names who yes like he kind of broke onto the scene but he had been working just like Borlaug for a long time um, without a lot of recognition. And my hope is that on the issues that we're, we're facing right now, we've got those kind of figures and that, that over time, seemingly big transformations will manifest, but not because of some major swing, but because of like the accumulation of really hard work. Amen. <laughs> From your lips to God's ears. Yes. Well, okay. Uh, get out there, read this book, Gradual, The Case for Incremental Change in a Radical Age. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Aubrey. Come back anytime. And thank you for this wonderful book and the work that you guys do. Thanks, Ravi. Thank you for having us. Thanks.